I am so happy to introduce our humble speaker today. I always come away with a new something to ponder in my prayer whenever I listen to Joan Watson. She was born and raised in Lafayette, Indiana, but college and graduate school took her to Virginia, Ohio, and Rome. After graduating from Christendom College with a Bachelor of Arts in History and Franciscan University with a Master of Arts in Theology, and she moved to Nashville to be a part of the explosion of Catholic culture in the middle of the Bible Belt. There she began working for the Nashville Dominicans at Aquinas College. As assistant director of the Office of Catechetics, she was part of a program that educated catechists in three dioceses and two states. During those years, she taught over a thousand adults, parish catechists, school teachers, and interested adults, giving her a unique opportunity to experience the joys and the sorrows of fellow Catholics from all backgrounds and walks of life. Those experiences shaped her approach to adult catechesis, and she eventually moved to consecrate solely on adult formation as the director of adult formation for the Diocese of Nashville. While working on her Master of Arts, Joan worked for Dr. Scott Hahn, don't know who he is, oh, oh excuse me, and the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. In addition to her work, she also travels throughout the country to speak and has spoken to audiences as diverse as high school students, business women, and members of the Roman Curia. She needs to add lay Dominicans, eh? For four years, she served on the National Advisory Council to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Joan is gifted in sharing the truth of Jesus Christ and his church to those who know little about the church and also to those who are scholars. I welcome Joan Watson. Thank you, Marilyn. Marilyn and I are related. Uh, my sister's a Nashville Dominican, and so I don't know what that makes us, but it makes us family. <laughs> Before I begin my talk today, I do want to kind of mention my role at the diocese, um, at the diocesan level. I'm the director of adult formation, and it's an office that actually didn't exist before I walked into Bishop Choby's office and told him that we needed it at the diocese. And he said, okay, why don't you do it? And I said, okay. And then I thought, what am I getting myself into? Um, but it's been a joy. It's been two years now that I've been at the diocese. And I work with the parishes to try to get adult formation on the parish level. That's kind of the primary goal is to really get your parishes to be offering things for you. 
But we also offer opportunities on the diocesan level. And so this Thursday, most of you have a flyer or a postcard in your hand. This Thursday is our last lecture for the fall before we kind of take a break for Advent and Christmas. And so I invite you all out to the Pastoral Center. It's right across from Opryland. It's easy to get to. There's lots of parking. And we have a gentleman joining us on Thursday night to talk about the post-Christian culture that we find ourselves in that's not warm and fuzzy towards us as Catholics and how we can be Christian in this post-Christian world. So Michael Poor himself isn't a Catholic, and he's an evangelical Christian, and it's a great opportunity to come together, even with our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, because we're all kind of fighting the same battles. And if we can't join forces with our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, I don't think we can win. And so uh, I'm excited to welcome Michael, and I welcome all of you. It's free, it's always open to any adult in the, in the diocese, so please spread the word. You might also know of little projects we do, like Three Minute Theology, if you are following Bishop Choby on Facebook, or if you go to Catholic Nashville on YouTube, you can see my smiling face every Tuesday when we release just really short nuggets of Catholic theology, and under, usually under three minutes. It's hard, but I try to keep it under three minutes, and just a different topic every week. Um, and so it's just a, a way to kind of get formation into the homes around Nashville. So, okay. I have a half an hour, so we're going to talk today about beauty. And I first gave this talk for Jimmy Mitchell. Some of you know him. He has a conference called the Glory Conference, and the conference concentrates on beauty. And when I, when I sit about to write this talk, I thought, you know, so often we talk about beauty, and it's all, around, it's all just up here, right? Um, what's the point of, of, of talking about beauty? And I wanted to bring it down, and I wanted to bring it to our lives, Sometimes, especially for young adults, with, with this talk was originally written for, we talk about beauty, but our lives don't look so beautiful. And all of you, I think, can, can understand that, that. How can I talk about beauty when there's so much suffering in this world? And there's so much suffering in my own life. And so this talk is hopefully going to address that. How do we talk about beauty when our lives aren't beautiful? And what does that look like? And how do we wrestle with that? This talk is, concentrates on um, an address that Pope Benedict gave before he was Pope Benedict in 2002 to a lay ecclesial movement called Communion and Liberation. And Cardinal Ratzinger at the time gave a talk um, on beauty and really addressed this paradox, the paradox of suffering and beauty. And so I've entitled this talk The, the Paradox of Beauty um, or Pope Benedict, Oscar Wilde, and the Beauty of the Cross. Pope Benedict in this address, Cardinal Ratzinger, begins by talking about a passage in Liturgy of the Hours, which you're all familiar with. And in the Liturgy of the Hours, he draws our attention to evening prayer of Monday in the second week of the four cycle of Psalms. So in the second week, um, evening prayer Monday, the first psalm that we pray that night is Psalm 45, which speaks of the beauty of the Messiah and speaks about the beauty of the king, his mission, his virtues, um, and the beauty of his bride. Now, during most of the year, the antiphon that we use to address, to begin this psalm, is derived from the psalm itself. Verse 3, yours is more than mortal beauty, every word you speak is full of grace. But in Holy Week, when we use this psalm, there's a different antiphon to preface the psalm, and it comes from Isaiah 53, 2, and it seems to say the exact opposite. He had neither beauty nor majesty, nothing to attract our eyes. 
Now, we know this as an Isaiah prophecy of the cross, of Christ on the cross, the suffering servant. And from studies like the Shroud of Turin, when we look at what Christ underwent in this crucifixion, we know that he was not beautiful, right? His appearance was so mutilated that it would have been natural for our human senses to cower from this, from this appearance, right? We turn away from him at the crucifixion. So Benedict notes this paradox. He said, why do we begin a psalm about beauty, the beauty of the Messiah, with this idea that we're actually turning away from ugliness, the ugliness, the suffering of the passion? And in, the, in his address, he says, you know, I'm not the first to recognize this paradox. And he says that St. Augustine, too, struggled with this idea. And Augustine says, well, both of these verses were spoken by the Holy Spirit. Both of these verses are inspired, so they both must be true. But how do, we recognize, how do we reconcile the beauty of the Messiah, who's truth and goodness and beautiful, um, he's beauty himself, how do we reconcile this with the ugliness of the cross? And St. Augustine says maybe we have to re-examine our idea of beauty. Now, when we speak of beauty, we think of sunsets and butterflies and, and this chapel, this mother house, the, the oratory, but also the chapel. Maybe we think of Raphael's paintings of the Blessed Mother or music by Bach. These things are aesthetically beautiful. They please our senses. But then there's the cross. And when we look at the cross, when we gaze upon our king who's been scourged and spat upon, who wears a crown of thorns... Is this beautiful? Now, on one hand, no, because it's the result of sin, right? And sin is ugly. But at the same time, this is the greatest act of love. The perfect suffering, the perfect obedience of Christ on the cross is the most beautiful act ever committed because it was done out of love for you and for the Father. And so Benedict says it's this paradox, this paradox of beauty, where we find the totality of true beauty. He says it's this paradox of the cross where we find what beauty really is. Now, the Catholic faith is full of paradoxes. Faith and reason, mercy and justice, God and man. And when we look at these paradoxes, it's often in these paradoxes that we come to a better understanding of the things themselves. The Second Vatican Council reminded us that it's in the, the, in the seeming contradiction of God becoming man, that paradox, how does God become man? The Second Vatican Council says that's how we really discover who man is. Only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light, the Second Vatican Council told us. So maybe it's through this paradox of beauty, the paradox of the cross, that we actually can find out more about beauty. Maybe we will find the truth about beauty when we look at this paradox of the cross. And I think this is key to engaging our culture today. We're not just going to talk about this because it's fun to talk about beauty. I think that this is the key to engaging our culture in what we call the new evangelization. But we have to have both understandings of beauty. There's, so we have to have the idea that beauty is the aesthetic, it's beautiful, it's ordered, and we have to have the understanding of suffering. Because I think if we lack either one, our love for beauty isn't complete. It's this understanding, this encounter that will change the world. What is beauty? Because beauty opens us to encounter something 
or someone beyond us. But we have to have the full understanding of what beauty is. Pope Benedict, who most people would think of as a scholar, kind of a dry theologian, said that, quote, being overcome by the beauty of Christ is more real. It's a more profound knowledge than mere rational deduction. It's more real, more, a more profound knowledge than mere rational deduction. Now he said theological study is important, but then he reiterated that if we aren't encountering Christ through beauty, our faith and our theology remain dry and impoverished. He said we must rediscover this form of knowledge, this idea of being touched by beauty. It's an urgent demand in this present hour. We must rediscover beauty, and when we search for beauty, we come face to face with the reality that my life isn't always sunsets. My life isn't always paintings by Raphael. There's suffering in the world around us, but instead of running from that suffering, I believe we need to preach it, and I think that's the key to the new evangelization and to preaching beauty. When I read this address by Pope Benedict about this, this struggle between the, the beauty and the aesthetics and the wonderful order of, of, of beautiful liturgy and, and paintings and art with the paradox of the cross, one person kept coming to my mind, and that's the author Oscar Wilde. I don't know if many of you are familiar with Oscar Wilde, um, but he was a British author, and he's perhaps best known for his plays like The Importance of Being Earnest. He wrote a lot of comedies. Um, he wrote one novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. And throughout his life, Oscar Wilde was drawn to the Catholic Church. He was drawn to her traditions. He was drawn to her liturgies. He was drawn to her art. He saw a beauty in her. And it could be argued that Oscar Wilde knew the Catholic Church was true because he saw that the Catholic Church was beautiful. Wilde, however, never received the sacraments until his deathbed because he struggled with homosexuality his entire life. And he lived in England at a time where homosexuality was illegal, and he was imprisoned for this sin, for this crime. He eventually was um, like released from prison. It was a huge deal in England, uh, made national, you know, the national news because he was well-known. He was a well-known author. And it's interesting, no matter how much the church draw him, drew him in, no matter how much he was drawn by the beauty of the church, he never found a home in the church because of his suffering. And I would argue that he found the beauty of the aesthetics, he found the beauty of art, of liturgy, of music, but he never found the beauty of the cross. He never embraced what beauty really was because he remained on the surface. He wasn't changed by an encounter with Christ on the cross. Oscar Wilde's sufferings had an answer. They had an answer. Christ's suffering on the cross, but he didn't embrace it until the very end. And he came into the church on his deathbed, but I have to wonder, what would his life have been like if he would have found this answer earlier? What would our world be like if this great artist had been told that the cross is beautiful and the cross is the answer? And so this is our task to lead people into beauty, but to help them realize that sometimes that beauty is the beauty of the cross. Oscar Wilde had a close friend named John Gray. And John Gray was also a poet. He ran around in the same circles as Oscar Wilde. And he had become a Catholic shortly before his friendship with Wilde. And he lapsed from the faith for a while as he struggled with his own um, vices and his own lifestyle. 
But then he returned to practicing the faith and he eventually entered the seminary. After Oscar Wilde was released from jail, um, he was a broken man and he, he died not long after. But he spent the last few years of his life in Europe. He, he had to leave England because of his, his crimes. And he spent some time in Rome. And during his time in Rome, Oscar Wilde saw John Gray. John Gray was a seminarian and he was living in Rome. And it's said that they saw each other. They, they made eye contact through the crowds. And they made eye contact and they both looked at each other. And then Gray turned and walked away. Later, John Gray would write a poem describing the moment when he saw this former friend, a man who had spent time in jail for his sins, who still struggled and suffered, and whose conversion was not complete. And John Gray wrote about this moment when he saw his friend and walked away. And the poem's entitled, The Lord Looks at Peter. The night alarm a weaponed crowd. One blow, and with the rest I ran. I warmed my hands and said aloud, I never knew the man. Now John Gray was obviously in a very difficult situation. <laughs> he was studying for Roman Catholic priesthood. Should he talk to this notorious sinner? Should he speak with him? Now his poem shows his regret later, that he did not speak, that he was silent, that he turned away. I think it's interesting, in Gray's poem, Wilde wasn't Jesus because he was sinless, but because he was suffering. And Gray walked away from that suffering. How would Wilde's life have been different if Gray chose to preach the gospel of suffering that day? Beauty had captured Oscar Wilde's heart to seek the truth, but suffering had hindered his conversion. He needed the beauty of the cross. He needed the beauty of truth. So let's return to those two parts of beauty that I spoke about earlier, the aesthetic, what we usually think of when we think of beauty, and the cross. I argue that if we have one of these without the other, we have an incomplete understanding of beauty. We forget the truth and the goodness which always should accompany beauty. So let's first look at a world with the cross, but without aesthetic beauty. Now, some people say that our world has no right to speak of beauty and of beautiful things because there's evil in the world. There's sin. What right do we have to speak of beautiful things? Pope Benedict said this has been expressed with the idea that after Auschwitz, it's not possible to write poetry. He says, the message of beauty is called into question by the power of seduction, violence, and evil. Basically, how can we speak about beauty when there's so much suffering? Is that a lie? Is that deception? In the midst of suffering, if we turn to the beautiful, are we hiding from evil? Are we hiding from reality? And Benedict says, no, we aren't hiding from reality when we speak of beauty. That embracing beauty in the midst of suffering is not only possible, it's necessary. When we experience the cross, we need beauty even more. And that's why if you look at the writings of Holocaust survivors, they talk about trying to create art in their cells on the wall. They drew pictures. They marveled at the sunrise. They marveled at the sunset. It was all they had. It was beauty. And often out of the deepest sufferings, we have the greatest art. 
I don't know if you're familiar with the paintings of Caravaggio, but he's a kind of post-Renaissance painter, and his paintings are beautiful. They're hauntingly beautiful. And I think they're most beautiful because he struggled so much with his own sanctity. Um, he was a troubled man. He killed a man over a, a tennis match. Um, he really struggled with his own conversion. And because he was a troubled soul, out of his suffering comes these great these, these paintings, like the conversion of St. Paul or the calling of St. Matthew. The fact that we suffer doesn't mean that aesthetic beauty is deceiving or fake. But the existence of suffering cries out for this beauty. Pope Francis in Evangelium Gaudium says, In the midst of darkness, something new always springs to life and sooner or later produces fruit. On raised land, life breaks through, stubbornly yet invincibly. However dark things are, goodness always reemerges and spreads. Each day in our world, beauty is born anew. It rises transformed through the storms of history. Suffering without God leads to despair. Suffering without beauty leads to despair because a suffering world needs beauty so that it can find God. It's not a denial of suffering. It's not a disregard for that pain, but it's an answer to that pain. The temptation of the world is to tell us that because there's evil, there is no God. We've probably all heard some version of that. Because there's suffering in this world, there can't be a good God. But the cross doesn't negate truth and goodness and beauty. The cross is our path to truth, goodness, and beauty. So we, we can't remain at the level of suffering. We always have to go past it to that level of goodness. And that's what beauty does for us. Let's look at the other incomplete idea of beauty, the idea that we have this aesthetic beauty, but we don't have suffering. This is what I think the majority of our world struggles with today, right? We love beauty. We don't like suffering. Right? Give me a beautiful world. Don't give me a world of suffering, right? Um, Benedict refers to this actually as a deceptive beauty, a dazzling beauty, because it ultimately never turns us outward. This deceptive beauty always turns us inward. It remains on the level of emotions. It's the same beauty that Eve perceives in the garden. She sees that the apple is beautiful. What does that apple call her do, to do but possess the fruit, right? It, it, it calls her inward, not outward. And it ultimately fails to satisfy. This is the beauty embraced by Oscar Wilde. He had this love for the beauty, but it was an inward desire to possess that beauty. It was a rejection of the outward truth, that objective truth. The aesthetic without God, the aesthetic without the cross, just degenerates into this emotional beauty. And it rejects truth for the sake of the selfish pursuit of beauty. Um, Oscar Wilde was actually part of a, a group that called, was, their motto was art for art's sake. Right? We just like the beauty because it's beautiful. Not because it propels us to do anything and not because it leads us to God. Now, if beauty is only aesthetic, it will fall short of truth and goodness and beauty. It has to have that suffering component in it. Benedict says that this, this empty beauty 
does not awaken a longing for the ineffable. It does not awaken a longing to sacrifice and to lose oneself. But instead, it stirs up the desire, the will for power, possession, and pleasure. He says, he actually says that you can tell it's fake. It fails to satisfy. He, Benedict actually refers to advertising. Right? This idea of like this deceptive beauty that just asks us to possess things. There's a beauty that draws us in, but it's not real. When beauty lacks suffering, we can sense that it's some sort of facade, that it's a fakeness. It's interesting, um, my nephew, some of you, you know my family, and my nephew, John Paul, was born with special needs. And it's really beautiful because people are drawn to him. And those of you who have family members with special needs know this from your own experience. People are drawn to that. My nephew is, is very adorable, right? He's, ador- he's cute, right? So people are drawn to that. But he also has no arms. And people are drawn to this because they sense that this is a, a real beauty that has a component of suffering. And there's joy there, but it's joy amidst suffering. It's joy amidst pain. Um, it's, it's phenomenal to see my sister take him out into public and people are just, everyone's drawn to babies, right? But this is different. Everybody wants to be with him. Um, he's in a public school preschool right now and, and all the kids want to play with him. Even these little three-year-olds who don't understand what's happening, everybody wants to be around him. There's a realness to that because there's a component of suffering. There's a beauty there, but there's an authenticity there because they're suffering. Now, at the beginning, when we looked at the idea of beauty and thought of the ugliness of the cross, they seemed like a contradiction. How can the cross be beautiful? But upon further investigation, we find that we can't separate beauty from suffering. And even the Greek philosophers understood this. Plato observed that we are wounded by beauty. Beauty actually causes suffering within us. Why? Because we realize we were made for more. We realize there's a transcendent that we haven't gained. Benedict talks about Gothic cathedrals and how you walk into a Gothic cathedral and your eyes are drawn upward and you feel so small. He says we're enraptured by the vertical lines that soar skywards and uplift our gaze. But at the same time, we feel small yet long for fullness. Beauty wounds, Benedict said. Beauty wounds, but it's precisely how it awakens us to our ultimate destiny. Because we know we fall short in this life. And it's in this pain of longing that we realize we were not made for this world. We long for fullness. We long for completeness. So as strange as it may seem, beauty involves suffering. Beauty involves the cross. Beauty is that resurrected body of Christ, that resurrected body that stands in front of us, so transcendent, so beautiful. But what does it bear? The wounds of the cross. It bears the wounds of our sins. Benedict says that it's in this paradox of suffering and aesthetic that gives us the true understanding of beauty. He says we must oppose the cult of the ugly, which says that everything, anything beautiful is a deception. And we must withstand the deceptive beauty that diminishes man instead of making him great. And so we must find ourselves between this. 
Not that we reject beauty because there's suffering out in the world, and not that we reject suffering because we just want beauty. But we find ourselves in between these two paradoxes. The world outside craves beauty. We see it everywhere. Whether it's in an art museum, right? Why does ancient art still attract us? Why does that Renaissance art, um, the Renaissance art is packed with, with religious symbols, right? The paganist of pagan people are attracted to the DC Smithsonian Museum of Art, which is full of annunciations and visitations. Our world craves that. They crave beauty. They crave authenticity. Even organic food, right? Why do, why do we want the be Why do people take pictures of their food, right? And anybody who's gone to Rome with me recently knows I'm the worst culprit, right? I was taking more pictures of my food than of people. Why? Because it was beautiful and it, it was authentic and it, 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 it gave me that sense of beauty and that order. You know, it's interesting, there's a coffee shop near here that I, I used to go every Sunday after Mass. Um, it's called Garage Coffee. And it's, you walk in and there's like used part, like car parts on the wall and like everybody has beards and you know, it's like super tough man garage coffee, right? They give me my latte and it's like perfectly, you know, swirled and it's this like perfect work of art. Why? Why do we want order? Why do we want beauty? Why do we want art? Everyone craves beauty. Everyone desires order and loveliness. Everyone desires something that transcends themselves. And what the new evangelization must do is take that desire for beauty and that desire for order and that craving for beautiful things and help people see this isn't an escape from reality, but this is the answer to reality. Because beauty is Jesus Christ. And when people undergo suffering, and we live in such a world that's suffering, I'm not just talking about people dying of hunger or people that are losing their life for our faith across the, you know, across the ocean. I'm talking about your friends and family. They're suffering because of the breakdown of family, because of emotional abuse, of physical abuse, of a depression. Our world is suffering. They're undergoing the cross. And they crave answers. And we have to take them the gospel of beauty and say, this is what you crave. Not because it's an escape from your suffering, but because it's the answer to your suffering. You crave beauty not because it dulls your senses, but because it answers that pain. But we have to understand that beauty isn't just aesthetic, but it involves the cross. And when we understand this, Beauty becomes the answer. Pope Benedict said that man knows that beauty is truth and truth beauty. But the suffering Christ, in the suffering Christ, he also learns that the beauty of truth involves wounds, pain, and even that obscure mystery of death. And this can only be found in accepting the pain, not ignoring it. Jesus didn't come down from the cross and say, don't worry, you won't have to suffer this, right? I'm suffering it, so you won't have to. No, God became flesh to suffer for you and to suffer with you. Benedict said that the truest beauty is the love of God who definitively reveals himself in the Paschal Mystery, who reveals himself on the cross. 
The cross and all its ugliness is beauty for us because it's love. And so we must take this message out to a world and say, world, we know you're suffering. Whether you admit it or not, we know you're suffering. And we're not here to take away that suffering. We're here to suffer with you. That's beauty. That's the good, the true, and the beautiful. That he who is good and true and beautiful underwent evil, falsehood, and ugliness to save us from ourselves. Pope Benedict says, encounter Christ through the arrow of his paradoxical beauty. Encounter Christ through the arrow of his paradoxical beauty. We have to go take the gospel to a world that's rejected it. They've heard of Jesus Christ, and they've rejected him because they don't really know who he is. They haven't really encountered him. Encounter Christ through the arrow of his paradoxical beauty. How do we do this? We do this through our own suffering. As Catholics, we know that suffering is redemptive and that we take that suffering that we all suffer and we unite it to the cross. And once we unite it to the cross, it has great power. Don't waste the sufferings that you already undergo every day, but unite them to the cross. Tell Jesus, these are yours, and I want to do great things with what you've given me. We also do it through our service. We all have the opportunity to be John Gray. We encounter Oscar Wilde every day. Will we walk away from them? Will we let them continue in their suffering because we're afraid to speak to them? Or will we reach out, even when it's hard, even when we have to tell them that the truth hurts, that the church is the answer? They don't want to hear that. Are we willing to give them that answer? Maybe they don't even know they're suffering. We have to preach the truth to them. Pope Francis said, sometimes we're tempted to be that kind of Christian who keeps the Lord's wounds at arm's length. Yet Jesus wants us to touch human misery, to touch the suffering flesh of others. He hopes that we will stop looking for those personal niches which shelter us from the storm of human misfortune and instead enter into the reality of other people's lives. Whenever we do so, our lives become wonderfully complicated and we experience intensely what it is to be part of a people. And lastly, we will do so with our witness. It is time to live beautiful lives, to live lives that proclaim that we know the truth and that this truth is good news. Pope Francis has a, um, a, he says this a lot, some variation of this, that why do Christians look like they've always come back from a funeral, right? No one's going to believe that it's good news if we're not living it, if, we're not, if we don't look joyful. Pope Benedict said, I've often said that I'm convinced the true apologetics for the Christian message, the true way we're going to show that the church is real, the church is true, the most persuasive proof of its truth, offsetting everything that may appear negative, are the saints on one hand and the beauty that the faith has generated on the other. We must come in contact with the beautiful, he says. So there's two reasons people are going to believe the church is the true church. The beauty, the art, the liturgies, 
and the saints. And I'm not just talking about the saints in heaven, I'm talking about you. Lead people to, beautiful, to beauty by living beautiful lives. John Paul II told us, not all are called to be artists in the specific sense of the term. But all men and women are entrusted with the task of crafting their own life. In a certain sense, they are to make of it a work of art, a masterpiece. Make your life that masterpiece that speaks the truth to others. People should be able to see you and be, I want what you have. I want to live a life like you. Because you're full of joy, even amidst the sufferings in your life. The cross is beautiful. The cross is beauty. Why? Because it's the way to communion. It's the way, it's, it's what we were created for, communion with God. And the cross is that key ingredient to becoming like Jesus Christ. So make your life a masterpiece today, tomorrow, and the next day. Thank you. Yes, are there any questions? I'm ready. <laughs> oh, sister, yeah. It's an address he gave in 2002 um, to communion and liberation. And it has different themes depending on where you find it. Um, it's usually, if you ever Google Benedict, like Pope Benedict and beauty, that's one of the first things that comes up. Um, so it's on the Vatican website because he was prefect, um, but I don't remember what title they give it on the Vatican website. But it was 2002 CNL. Yeah. Yes, Mary. Yes, so there's several ways. Um, so Marilyn asks, like, how do we unite our sufferings to Christ, especially if, if we don't think of it during the day? And she mentioned the morning offering, and that's a great way that at the beginning of the day, you're giving Jesus everything. My joys, my sorrows, my sufferings, everything is yours. And so, so that's kind of the coverall, like, you know, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this, right? This is my, my, um, my goal today. Now, in the heat of the moment, you might lose sight of that, right? And so you, you suffer and you complain and, you know. Um, the other time I like to do it is at the offertory of Mass. And when the offertory, when the gifts are brought up, if there's an offertory procession, I just heap everything on top of that procession. And that's what the offertory procession symbolizes, right? We're bringing our gifts up. But so often, what are our gifts? Our sufferings and our joys and our sorrows and our grievances. And, and so, so to, to put those on the offertory procession so that when, when Father offers the gifts up to the, to the Father, he's offering everything that you have to give as well. And sometimes that makes our sufferings a little lighter, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, in the heat of the moment when you're undergoing suffering, to just say, okay, Lord, I give this all to you. And sometimes that will make the suffering lighter. Sometimes it won't. Um, so it's a few different ways you can just kind of enter into. But we, it's, it's not hard. It's, it's really just that prayer, that, that prayer at, at the moment to say, okay, Lord, this is hard. <laughs> um, I, before I left for Rome, there were lots of little 
difficulty. So I just got back from pilgrimage um, on last Sunday. And uh, there were lots of little things before we left that were disturbing my peace. And I knew there was a great temptation that lots of those things would happen on the trip and would disturb my peace. And I remember I was sitting one morning, the morning we left, I was sitting and I was getting ready to do my morning prayer. And I was outside in the darkness. And I was just like, this is yours. <laughs> and looking to Jesus. And looking back, it was a bit of a threat. Like, this trip is yours. And if it crashes and burns, it's all your fault, right? Um, but it also was a prayer, Right? This is yours, and it's not my trip. And if anything good happens, it's not because of me. And if anything bad happens, it's not because, no, it's all because of me. Um, but just even that, that simple prayer, um, that he will transform that. Um, so whether it's a, it's a suffering or a joy, we can't forget to give him our joys too. But just even just in humble, like plain English to say, this is yours, and I'm gonna do, you're going to do with it what you want, and I want to be an instrument of that power. But it really is just a, is a, that prayer. Yes, Maria. When you said you can't really separate beauty and suffering, mm -hmm. uh, I know some people that would really argue with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, they can say, a beautiful spring day. You know, everything you see is beautiful. God made it all beauty. How can you say that beauty and suffering can't be separated? Are you saying that more for suffering rather than beauty? Because if you have a beautiful spring day, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Period. It's there. Mm -hmm. But suffering has to have um, a way to turn into beauty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because everything that God made is good. Mm -hmm. And is that what you mean when you say you can't separate beauty and suffering? Yes, but even the beautiful spring day, I think, um, because we live in a fallen world, that beautiful spring day is going to end. There's somebody enjoying that beautiful spring day who's not enjoying it because they have an interior suffering in themselves. Um, something awful is going to happen in the world on that beautiful spring day. So I think there's a, it's, it's ultimately heaven will be beauty without suffering, right? Here on earth, whatever we find beautiful we'll still have some component. And if we ignore that suffering, I think that's, the, that's where we fall into the trap. Um, there'll be people, not that we can't enjoy the beautiful spring day for the beautiful spring day it is, um, but there's someone enjoying that spring day who's suffering. And to make them realize, like, this beauty is an antidote to that suffering. Go enjoy the beautiful spring day, but we're not going to ignore the fact that you're suffering in the midst of it. Um, that this beauty is the answer to your pain, but it's not, you can't ignore the pain through it. Um, and so I think any aspect of beauty on this earth has an aspect of pain to it somewhere because we live in a fallen world. Um, and that's what the cross is that answer to. The cross is the answer to that fallen world that we can have both, right? And I'm going to bring you to heaven where there is no suffering. Um, but you're right about the beauty. Whenever there's suffering, it always has to be turned into to beauty. It's just hard for people to see that. Um, they'd much rather see beauty than the suffering. Yes, Cynthia. Would it be correct to think that sometimes perhaps you're in a moment of everything is just perfect, you know, an instant or a, you know, a moment or, or something like that, but the suffering would be that the complete beauty, you're still waiting. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So no matter when, I mean, we 
that that beauty is always incomplete in some way because we're not in heaven and we have that longing for that transcendence. So by Yes, like when, when Ratzinger talks about the cathedral, right? We should have beautiful churches. <laughs> we need beautiful churches. But what does that beauty in the church remind us? That we are made for heaven and that we're not there yet. Um, and that's why he says, you know, we don't want the cult of the ugly. You should never say, well, we're going to build really ugly churches because beauty is only in heaven. <laughs> um, but which some people would say, that, never mind, um, I won't go there. But, um, but the beautiful church should be there because it's a foretaste of heaven, but in our head, in our mind, we always realize, but we fall so short, right? So maybe you're in a beautiful church with a kind of painful choir, right? Or a painful liturgy, right? That there's always, we always fall short or it always ends that when, when we seek, and that's how the Greek philosophers said, like, well, we know that beauty and, and happiness on this earth is fleeting because it ends. So it can't, there has to be something more because it ends. Nothing on this earth doesn't end. Um, and so we, we embrace beauty, but we recognize it's, we were made for more, even than this. Yes? Yes, there has, so he was referring to the fact that, you know, when we, when we look at the Christian message, if we focus on judgment and sin, um, it doesn't look like good news, right? It's, it's, it's not freeing, it's not beautiful. Um, and I think there has to be a balance, because I think there's also a danger in not talking about sin and not talking about judgment, um, but that doesn't answer the people's needs either. Um, I mean, I hate to say it, but some, Oscar Wilde needed someone to tell him, hey, listen, you're actually not happy. <laughs> you think you're happy? But deep down, if you read the varieties of Oscar Wilde, he knew he wasn't. He knew he was looking to, to, to satiate this thirst, and he was looking in all the wrong places. So I think there has to be a balance. When we do talk about sin, there always has to be an answer to that. And I think that's where we, we run amok, is that we just talk about sin and judgment, and we forget to tell people about the love of God. And that's why... Um, but if we only talk about the love of God, it's really easy for us to just go live our own little lives without changing and then we'd actually don't encounter Christ. So there's that balance between mercy and justice and judgment and love. Um, and I think sometimes our world labels, oh, you're being judgmental, when I'm actually just preaching the truth and wanting you to have a better life than you have now. But that's a, that's a pastoral, that's, that has to be done with, with brother to brother and sister to sister, that has to be done with love. Um, and so if we just preach judgment, we're never going to win any souls. Um, if we just preach love, no one's ever going to actually encounter Christ because their lives aren't going to change. So there definitely has to be a, a balance, and I think we've swung pendulum swings in the past, and we have to find that balance between, between them. Yes? Thank you. 
Yes. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. And you know where that happens, but at the altar, at mass. That's where beauty comes to us. That's where the kingdom is. Um, he did want this kingdom on earth. And he brings it to us. Um, where, the kingdom is, where the king is, there's the kingdom. And where's the king but on the altar?